All right, welcome to the Food Professor Podcast, episode 11. So, Vance, I look at the work you and the team do in the Agri-Fruits Lab, and I have to give you credit where credit's due. Sometimes I look at the research you're proposing or you're doing, you're telling me about, and I'm like, who's actually going to pay attention to that? And I was thinking about gardening. My God, I, I can't get you off my screen. You must have done how many interviews around the pandemic gardening research. You really captured the attention of media and people. So congratulations. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, first of all, I have a great team. Uh, Lisa Mullins and Janet Music, uh, both uh, co-authors of this report. Also, uh, Erica uh, Wang also was a co-author. So we were four on this study. Uh, the lab is about getting people together with common interests. Mm. And, uh, but it's also about timing, too. Uh, we did release the report on the eve of Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, so it was very fitting. People were t- thinking about Thanksgiving, about about food, about harvesting, celebrating our harvest. So we thought it was very, very convenient to uh, to present findings of a study on gardening. And frankly, we we were looking around all summer long for data on gardening. There was nothing around. Mm-hmm. So we thought, let's well, provide let's something here. Yeah, absolutely. You're a very media savvy group for a group of. Um uh, skilled academics, because usually you don't always find those two <laughs> things in the same yeah. in the same room, you know. But well, take us through some of the some of the you know till the soil for us, so to speak. One in five Canadians, <laughs> I, I was reading, uh, one in five Canadians started gardening during the pandemic. Which you know, I you know, and basil doesn't count. I saw the circle you have of the most popular products, and no no basil in there. So I'm out from yeah. a gardening perspective. But t- take us through the that's research. All, that's and, all you got and, at home, basil. That's it. That's all you got. Well, well. to be fair, I have a wonderful <laughs> Portuguese father-in-law who has a massive garden. And, uh, you know, so I, he kind of does the heavy lifting, so to speak, for right. us. But what I, what I think is really interesting, what I really love your opinion on it, A, it kind of top notes on the study. But B, you know, we're going to be in this COVID era again next year in some way, shape or form. People started gardening and, and hopefully will continue continue in some way and what does how what does this mean for grocers and what does it mean for us and and what does it mean for the industry and and what are your thoughts on the con- kind of conclusions of thinking about gardening at the homes well yeah i mean the bump the the 20 percent bump was pretty high i mean we didn't expect to see that almost one canadian and five actually started to garden this year that was uh, that's mm. a lot of people i mean i actually mm-hmm. can i saw that in my neighborhood i don't know about you but we saw it in our neighborhood right here and uh, so that was massive and uh, and of course over the last uh, few days the question that i did get a lot is whether or not it's going to stick and mm-hmm. that's the real question uh, and and i think because in the spring, what got people to garden, I think, uh, were a couple of things. Uh, the biggest thing that came out of our studies is is this uh, need to feel in control, mm. food insecurity. This because mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. the empty shelf syndrome got people to think differently about food, and so the yeah, natural extension to cooking at home is is to grow your own food, and uh, and it happened. And of course, if you couple that with boredom. And being mm-hmm. home a lot, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen again next year. I mean, I, I don't think that people will be locked down again uh, in the spring. Uh, at least I hope not. Uh, but a lot of people actually have put a lot of money 
into gardening. I mean, you need, you need equipment and it takes a lot of time. And this year I mm-hmm. suspect that a lot of Canadians, I figured uh, something out. Gardening is hard work <laughs> and, you, right. and you need right. to know what you're doing. I've, when I was a kid, I gardened a lot. I mean, our, our garden at home in Farnham, Quebec was the size of half a football field. Wow. So it's big. It was big. It was yeah. a lot of work, yeah. and we and thanks Thanksgiving for us was very important. So a lot of people actually figured that one out this year, whether or not they want to go back. And a lot of people did fail. I mean, tomatoes were the most popular commodity, but a lot of people mm-hmm. actually ended up buying tomato plants only to see them die. And so because mm-hmm. they not enough water, not enough sun, they didn't know how to trim them. So and you have to take care of, of tomato plants. Uh, there are certain things you need to do. I think over the next spring, you'll see probably more Canadians be more educated about gardening. But I don't expect mm-hmm. a, another 20 percent bump. I, I, so the gardening rate before COVID was about 30 percent. It went up to almost 50 but I don't think it's going to remain at 50. I, I don't think so. A, I think we'll be in the same place we are right now or the summer next year. I don't think we'll be in the same degree of lockdown, but I think we'll still be in, in the same environment, right? I don't mm, think there'll be anything right. different. There'll be no vaccine. There'll be nothing. So we'll be, if all goes well, we'll be the same as it was in the summer. So I do think it will be on people's minds. And I think the, you're right. I don't think another 20%. I think half those people will go, wow, this is way harder than I thought. But the other half, I think, will will, will continue. I think there's a more psychological benefit to it. And you, you hit on it right off the top, which is some kind of control, some kind of calming thing I can do, some kind of I'm going to grow my own food, successful or not, and I'm going to persevere and do it. I hope that out of this or out of that bump comes a better appreciation for our farmers and and growing food and and you know just that kind of sense that many of us lost over the decades of of you know the work that goes in and the skill uh, that goes into putting food on our tables throughout the entire you know supply chain i i think people do appreciate farmers uh uh, I think what's going to change is the understanding of farming, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. which is because uh, often farmers say, "Well, do people trust farmers?" Mm. I, I think they've always trusted farmers. I'm not sure they trust farming anymore. Uh, mm. With all the things that we're hearing, you know, a lot of people are concerned about pesticides and the industrialization of of farming yeah. and, uh, and, farms, and GMOs or whatever biotechnologies you know, yeah. coming in. That's right, and so I. I I actually do think that the the, the legacy of, of gardening this year is very much about education. How food is grown, mm. what what are the production cycles? Because we've been spoiled. We actually have we get tomatoes, oranges, bananas all year round, nonstop. Right, right. And now people are realizing, oh, right, tomatoes. I mean, you need to plant tomato plants uh, like in january february if you want to get tomatoes by august right Mm. and people Mm. are realizing that strawberries actually the season in canada is mostly between mid-june to mid-july right i mean there there are a lot of things that are that that were lost uh along the way over the last few generations that have gone back now with gardening at home i think that's really the biggest thing and of course in our report we we do encourage cities uh, condo management uh, companies to to look into gardening because it's for a lot of people it's exercise it's therapeutic yeah. i'm absolutely trying to find some one negative thing about gardening i can't do it hmm. it's all positive no. it's all positive 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Communi- from community gardens to gardening in your backyard to some tomato plants in a box on your on your patio. Or exactly. Your, and your, we did exclude cannabis, by the way. It's not just fine herbs. <laughs> we exclude cannabis. <laughs> That's the toughest thing to grow. That's tougher than tomatoes, actually. That's I don't know. to grow good cannabis, Is it? actually. Yeah, that's... Well, that's what I, I. That's what I'm told. Well, um, Michael, tell us more about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough plant to grow. It takes a lot of care and, and feeding, and and um, well, you know, I, there's a I, lot I, of science that goes into it. And you know. yeah, the, the sunlight and the and the moisture mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's uh, what's it's. Yeah. I've been told it's it's like it's it's called weed for a reason. It grows like weed. Mm-hmm. I thought it was easy to grow, but yeah, yeah. I may be wrong. Well, I think it's easy to grow hemp. Uh, like it's a 90 day cycle. And, and if you know, you get one thing that goes wrong, you, you go from bespoke top tier cannabis to rope, uh, in, in a matter of days. And that's, that's what I've been told, you know, back in, you know, we're kind of getting a little off topic, but it's still relevant back in the days when there was a shortage, I think the industry generally underestimated growing at scale just for these reasons, right? Is is it can be like all crops? It, it takes a, a great degree of, of skill. So anyway, well, this is you know interesting. Now I want to talk about a chilling, or should I say, chilly tale of food fraud. So I was yes. reading this uh, note, oh you know this God. this this you know this this organic raspberry scandal. You and the Agri Food Labs, I think, played a role in. So tell us about it. So what I read is there's raspberries bought from China moved to Chile, relabeled as organic and sold as organic up into Canada. Am I capturing that right? And, and what was your role in understanding that? And talk about food fraud a little bit. How, how is this a one-off thing? And what can we do about it? That's kind of yeah, no, absolutely. Line, but, you know. So we get a phone call in June from Reuters, uh, from a, a reporter out of New York State. He's been reporting on this, is, on this story out of Chile, uh, Santiago. And there was this case uh, of a company being being sued by the government for for food fraud. As the case evolved, more evidence was presented to the judge because the the company, which was really a company of three or four employees, it was a very very it was a very small company. It was a wholesaler essentially to try to understand. So what was going on with the labels? And uh, as they investigated, as as the case grew. And it, it it was all in Spanish, and of course, I was I was giving all of this material to read uh, forty hours in advance, and had to sign a, an NDA and all that stuff, and so read the whole stuff. And we met over uh, over Zoom in June, and then again in July uh, for a second time, basically to provide him with some information uh, about about Canadian law and uh, what goes on here, and who actually is responsible for food safety and food fraud. And we were trying to educate the uh, the reporter. Uh, his name is David Sturwood from Reuters. It wasn't clear as to why he was interviewing me about Canadian law, mm. but it's during the second session we had together that I started to realize that the one company which was running the entire global scheme was out of Montreal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's, that's why you started to look into Canada to look at uh, the CFIA, its role and Mm-hmm. And with Global Affairs, and and he actually made some phone calls to Global Affairs, made some phone calls to the CFIA, had no clue what was going on in Montreal with this company, uh, which is now under receivership uh, for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, but that's really what happened. So this 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 story 
took uh, it took David eight months to develop. Think of the investigation. Think of the time, full time. So we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, invested by routers to really look at this issue very seriously, only to realize that a company out of Montreal decided to actually buy raspberries and other berries, uh, by the way, not just raspberries, from China, get them shipped through New Zealand into Chile, relabeled as Chilean raspberries or berries shipped into Canada without knowing that they were actually produced out of China. And the CFI had no idea, and I think they're starting to, to look into this matter right now. So it's a really complicated case, but really, mm-hmm. when you look at it, you, you, it's, it's quite sophisticated. And, and, they, and they actually got away with it for many, many years. So if you're a consumer in Canada who has bought berries labeled as berries from Chile, uh, there's a very good chance that those berries actually came from, uh, from China. And, and in the story, the, the bulk of the story is about raspberries. But in our discussion, it wasn't really about just raspberries. My guess is that Reuters, before releasing the study, they had to go through legal and legal only allowed rooters to talk about raspberries because there was enough evidence to actually come out with a story on raspberries alone. But other wow. berries so, were involved. Hmm. Yeah. So it's bad for everybody. I mean, it's bad for the for the farmers in Chile who um, work to build a strong brand around great quality product. It's bad for you know consumers and candidates. It, it's not great for the governments who try to catch this stuff. I mean, this is where it sounds very organized. It's not like... You know, these it wasn't kind of a, a slipshot kind of one-off deal. So it, it's a hard thing to catch, right? I mean, this is a hard. Is there any solution? Is it more more inspectors, more enforcement, more attention to this? The retailers have a role. What what you know? What would your what would your recommendations be in in a few minutes around how to prevent this kind of thing from happening, or at least discover it happening? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to 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 blame. Mm-hmm. The Cane Food Inspection Agency. I mean, that, that it's a. It took me weeks to understand the case, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I got. I, I was provided with all the evidence I needed, and so gathering all the evidence, understanding what was going on, what is going on, uh, is not easy to do. And I suspect it's a, it's still happening for other products as well right now, which is concerning. Mm-hmm. I, I I have hope for better technologies, I guess. And, and the one thing that mm-hmm. comes up a lot is blockchain. Blockchain mm-hmm. is, uh, is, a, is a model, is a philosophy, which would allow these things to be, to be uh, prevented, essentially. Because you all of a sudden, if you do buy as a consumer, if, if, if blockchain technologies were to work for a case like this one, consumers will know exactly where products, by whom these products were handled, by right. where it the came immutable from. ledger right the immutable a, ledger of uh, great great for for recalls as well right so absolutely both for ibm's so it, got a big it, platform it, for this it, right? IB, ibm is is mm. the is the godparent of blockchain mm. i mean and they got mm. married with a company you may have heard walmart and that's oh, why walmart yeah. is pushing blockchain quite a bit mm. because of its partnership with ibm and of course blockchain technologies do create tension within the supply chain because 
you make the you make the entire supply chain very transparent. So think of all the secrets, mm. the pricing, the ingredients. Mm. I mean, as you know, Middle Michael, oh, the food sector is all about secrets, and so a secret mm. things going on, and so it's it's really going to be tough to implement. But it's it's the one model that could actually work to prevent these kinds of of things from happening again. Yeah, and um, you know, we we jumped right we jumped right into the podcast, and I forgot to tell the listeners we we've got an amazing guest from Peace by Chocolate and Antigonish. Uh, Nova Scotia, Terry Kadad uh, is joining us, and uh, we have, you know, let's let's bring him on. Let's uh, let's yeah, absolutely uh, listen and and, and let's uh, let's talk to Tarek. Uh, Tarek, uh, so it's such an honor to have you on our podcast. Uh, I, I've been following. We met four years ago, and since then, uh, your your journey uh, in uh, in Canada has been uh, nothing short but amazing. Your own story, your family story. Uh, you have a book out now you're you, there's going to be a movie on your on your on your family uh, coming out soon it's just been terrific to watch and uh, and of course uh, congratulations on all your success uh, the the focus of our talk this uh, or during this podcast is going to be very much about your role as ceo of peace by chocolate and 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 this whole intrigue around syrian chocolate uh, so so first of all i guess Tarek, i'd like to ask you how how is it to start a business, a food business in rural Canada, like in Antigonish? It's not it's not like it's in a metropolitan. It's a it's a it's a rural community. So uh, right. tell us a little bit about uh, about how challenging it was to start a business in Antigonish. Uh, absolutely. Well, thank you first for having me. It's it's really an honor to to be joining you and just talking a little bit about. Our, our story and our business, we know that, you know, food businesses and businesses in general in Canada and around the world are, are platforms to share many ideas, many, many stories, many skills, many talents. And uh, the reason why we did that when we came to Canada is our family come from a background where uh, my, my dad, actually, he's the, the pioneer of this idea and brought chocolate into the family history in 1986. Uh, when he really decided to to be the man who make the difference and just be an entrepreneur, a, a food entrepreneur. And since then, really, the, the family has, it's been in our DNA, I would say, that we love to share um, food. And chocolate, as, as my father used to say, it's a product of happiness. So when we came to Canada in 2016, it was a private sponsorship uh, by the community of Antigonish. Uh, when we arrived here, we had no idea where we were going to be, by the way, when we got to Canada in 2016. We just wanted to come to a safe place, living in, uh, in peace, and rebuild our lives. And we didn't mm-hmm. know what we were going to do. The idea was maybe we will find, uh, we'll find a, a job that my father can join another company and he can reshare his skills and I would be on another different path in my life. But as immigrants, we, we came to Canada and we realized the fact that this country has given us so much. So now it's our, our opportunity to return and give back to the country. And starting a business in Antigonish was, was nothing short of really um, uh, amazing support of the community and the people who live here. Starting a business in, in rural areas in Nova Scotia certainly is different. We, My father and the company we used to uh, uh, manage and, and own in Syria was in the center of the of the city. It's in Damascus, city of millions of people. So being in Antigonish, mm-hmm. 
certainly it's much different in terms of the logistics, you know, getting everything here, shipping stuff in the factory, shipping stuff out the factory, getting supplies, getting samples, uh, even getting, getting um, you know, taste testers. <laughs> <That laughs> sounds ridiculous, but... I'm, sure, yeah, I'm sure you didn't have a problem with that. <laughs> no, no, no that, was not, that was not a big issue. That was not a big issue, for sure, <laughs> because <laughs> we have a big family too, so we, right. we have a lot of them. But yes, it, to your it, point, it's, it's much different to be in rural areas and uh, start the food business here. We know I wanted to touch on, on uh, one thing, which is... The, uh, the food insecurity, the idea when I came to Nova Scotia in 2016, and I heard a lot about the food insecurity in our province. And uh, if, if everything shuts down and Nova Scotia got separated from uh, across the country, we will not have enough food for, for only uh, a few days, maybe, maybe 10 to 14 days. <laughs> so the That's idea right. for us to start the food business was really important just to get uh, get rid and get part of the system. What is unique about uh, Syrian chocolate compared to to other chocolates you would find around the world, like in Switzerland or Belgium? What's different? What's unique? It, it's all about the, the the cocoa beans, and it's also all about the filling. So the to start with the cocoa beans, uh, you know, there are different types that we do here in in, in Canada. Um, the Syrian chocolate we used to make in Syria was um, a lot softer, and it's it goes a lot into the liquid chocolate than the hard chocolate that you find now in grocery stores in, in Canada. And uh, because, you know, the cocoa, the different types of cocoa butter, uh, that, that makes it different. And also the, the temperature that the cocoa beans are roasted. Uh, uh, is is much different as well. So when we came to Canada, we didn't want to be so exotic. We didn't want to try to do something that people would not like. Chocolate is like music. It's universal, right? And everyone yes. understands it. Everyone understands chocolate. Everyone loves it. And there is that, that understanding that we didn't want to take too much to the strange uh, uh, spectrum. So we kept we kept our flavors to the ones that we used to do in Syria, which is basically heavily related to nuts. So if you eat anything Syrian or Middle Eastern, you find a lot of nuts, especially pistachio. pistachio That's, and right. That's right. Mm-hmm. A lot of pistachio and hazelnut. And, um, you know, incorporating these these flavors and the, the roasted nuts into the chocolate in the beginning was really something we were we were proud of. So when we came to Canada, we didn't have machines in the home kitchen. That's where we started. What we did is we used the, the pots and the pans in the kitchen, in the home kitchen in Antigonish. And we started on the stove just, you know, um, melting and tempering and roasting cocoa beans and the flavors and cocoa butter and mixing stuff. Uh, we got everything from the grocery store. <laughs> so we didn't get everything right. ideal in the beginning until really we got the flavor right. We, we kept playing with it. We kept doing taste testing, as I mentioned. In community, we went to many events, asked people, do you like this? Does this sound appealing to you if we do it? Coconut, do you like coconut? Maybe so many Canadians, they don't like coconut. Uh, and that was really a big part of, of what we do. And we were surprised for one thing, honestly. The one thing that surprised us the most that we don't do in Syria is using sea salt or salt in chocolate. That was very... Really? Of, yes, <laughs> we don't do that. So, so, so why, why is that? Is it because of taste, because of... Of, yeah. of taste buds in, in, in your in your country? 
mainly mainly because chocolate goes uh, in the Middle East towards the the sweet side, and uh, the last okay. thing you want to do when you introduce a sweet dessert to a person is to include dessert, uh, salt, especially if you are in the Middle East. So the mix of flavors between the sweet and the salt they are absolutely the opposite. They don't mix, and I don't think really a lot of the Middle Eastern kitchens they mix these two ingredients together at all. So because there is sugar already in any kind of chocolate, even the, even the dark chocolate, not everything is cocoa in the dark chocolate. So there is slightly some sugar there. And uh, yeah, that was that was just like a very, very strange thing that we had to, to learn when we came to Canada is there are different things that certainly people like here. And uh, dark chocolate almond with sea salt. And yes. when we hear that, you know, <laughs> we were like... Who is going to eat that? Like, why would you? <laughs> we're, we're definitely in a new country. If we didn't know it before, we're in a different place now. This is yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're, we're addicted to salt here in Canada. Yeah, yes, for for absolutely. better or for worse, absolutely. Well, it's, and, it's, is there was there another ingredient that you struggled to get? So you bought everything at the grocery store, but was there an ingredient you were looking for? You wanted to get, but you couldn't when you uh, started your business. Well, there are special types of soy lecithin that we use in the chocolate that uh, certainly we struggled in the beginning. Uh, none of the grocery stores, they had the, the, the material that we needed. And uh, it was like really a, a challenge. But then it that the challenge that I mean, it's, it's like two weeks. So <laughs> it was not too, <laughs> really too long for us to figure out. You know, we, we are lucky, honestly, and uh, that we arrived in Canada in 2016. Because if you arrived before, if you arrived in 2000, if the war in Syria was in 1995 and we landed in Canada in 1999, for example, no internet, you know, no connectivity, you cannot really go and look online, you cannot find suppliers, our life would have been much different and much, much struggling. So now with social media, with the internet, with the connectivity, it makes finding suppliers and looking for ingredients and asking for feedback and reading reviews and uh, replying to comments and talking to people is much easier. So the start oh, of the business with, at this time, I would say it's 100% easier to start a business now. You can go on YouTube and you can watch videos for a week and you become an expert to start a business. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's, really, it's really something interesting at this point that we arrived in Canada at that time when... Also, in addition to the internet, in addition to the uh, to all the information that that was accessible to us, we had a great group of people around us who really wanted to support. And uh, digging down and finding solutions was uh, was really uh, the you know the, the support the way that they supported us in the beginning. And I always say, if you have a challenge in your life, there are two options: you can sit down and complain. And say, I couldn't get that ingredient. I couldn't get that machine. I couldn't do that in my kitchen. Or you can dig down and find solutions. So uh, we, we chose the second option because we knew that uh, we had uh, a great path here in Canada to do. You know, we there are not too many uh, uh, chocolate companies in Nova Scotia. Everyone loves chocolate, but there are not too many chocolate companies in Nova Scotia. That's right. That's right. And we wanted to be part of this. So uh, we started we started a party. <laughs> <laughs> Have you yeah. have you thought of of uh, of uh, making another type of food other than chocolate as you uh, build your business? Uh, yes, absolutely. So what we did was, um, you know, since we started the company, we, we used to do and we did a lot of improvement in the past four years. Honestly, I'm really surprised, even thinking about it now, 
because I don't get to pause every day and think about it. When we started in 2016 in the home kitchen that was in the spring, we had only three types of chocolate and maybe three flavors. We had milk chocolate, dark chocolate, and white chocolate. These are the three types. And we had pistachio, we had hazelnut, and maybe we incorporated some kind of dried fruits. I think it's the dried orange with other kind of nuts um, um, and with cardamom. So with only three flavors and three types of chocolates, now we have almost 148 flavors and types of products that we do in Canada. We, we invented actually wow. some, other, some other kinds of products. We incorporated some of the new inventions of chocolate. So we added two types of chocolate that people don't know that they exist. The other type is milk, dark, and white, and there is gold chocolate, and there is ruby chocolate. And this new chocolate, actually, we, we introduced them to many communities here in Nova Scotia, and we got really huge, massive feedback. So I would say, yes, we have thought a lot about going out of chocolate, but chocolate itself, there is, there is like limitless ways that we can use this product and go with it, right? So mm-hmm. there are a lot of ways to to shape it, to decorate it. It's very flexible material. Like it's, it's something that you mold it and you can decorate it. You can, uh, uh, you know, color it. You can uh, do whatever you want with it. But we wanted to introduce new stuff. So in 2019, we started using other than chocolate, which is the cookies and pretzels. We introduced those to the market as well uh, throughout our uh, uh, national uh, uh, partnership with Sobeys. Sobeys, yep. Yeah, and also Lawton's here in Atlantic Canada that they were really, uh, we're really grateful just for, for which is us owned by Sobeys as well. Yeah, it is owned by Sobeys. Yes, so yeah. we went we went there, but also now we are looking into getting some other kinds of um, uh, you know products onto into the shelves. We will we stick with chocolate. You know, we are piece by chocolate. So the last thing we would know <laughs> would want is to go like piece by coffee or piece by something else. So we are. We are now with, with chocolate for, for a while to uh, deliver the message. That's what we are experts in. Um, yeah. And usually, you know, we are in a completely new market. We have been in Canada less than five years. So we, we, we just I know. To, we just wanted amazing. to continue what we have come here to do. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we have still a lot of time to incorporate other stuff. We introduce a lot of... Uh, swag lines like clothing and uh, we have a lot of uh, we had a lot of success actually they're actually there too because at the end of the day we didn't only build a food brand we built a, a piece brand and there are many right. pieces that we are uh, we incorporated there together that people really everyone everyone wants peace everyone loves chocolate Exactly. That's, that's our who, time. I, I got to ask you, Tarek, and I'm sure you've been asked many times, who came up with this beautiful name, Peace by Chocolate? It's so perfect. The, the, we, the mixture of both worlds, you know, peace and chocolate, they both go together so well. Absolutely. It was, um, it was in, 2000, I think, uh, 2016, right after we started in the home kitchen, the name was that has chocolate for peace. And it was very long. I, I certainly didn't want to print that on a label again. And we kept thinking about it. And there are many friends that they reached out to us. Um, there is a, a company out in uh, Halifax called This Is Marketing. Uh, the owner is, uh, is called Neil Stephen. And uh, mm-hmm. Neil, Neil reached out to me after he heard me on a CBC interview in 2016. 
And he was like, um, what can I help you with? And uh, I was like, yeah, we're just starting. We need to build a website. We need to have, you know, the, the company to start. And then we had that meeting when I wanted, I told him I need to come up with something that relates so much to chocolate, but also speaks highly of peace mm-hmm. in, in some way. And we kept really playing with names. And my father and, and Neil and uh, other friends, and we, we, were, we were talking about it and we actually just figured out with at, at that meeting that the name should be Peace by Chocolate. It was, uh, it was really the, the time when we knew we have to deliver a message to Canadians throughout our name, because people would not have responded the same if the chocolate was called the head had chocolate or if it was called the Tarek chocolate, mm-hmm. no one would, no one would have cared the same. I think we are, we are speaking uh, the language that we, people wanted to hear. And also the, uh, our uh, slogan is one piece won't hurt. So <laughs> piece by chocolate, <laughs> one piece won't hurt are now uh, uh, trademarked. Uh, we, have uh, worked since 2016 really to make the brand nationally as people aware could be aware of it as possible. And we keep pushing it really across the border, outside of Nova Scotia, outside of Atlantic Canada, because we know that, uh, you know, we are, we are a massive country. <laughs> like the, yeah. there, there's a lot going on and we wanted to keep uh, telling the story what's happening here in Nova Scotia. Let me let me pick up on that thread. Uh, let's talk. We've been talking about the great the journey, the origin story, the brand, and the product. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the distribution and the go to market strategy, so to speak. Sylvan and I talked to a lot of food entrepreneurs who have great ideas, make products, and then of course, you know, they need to get it into consumers' hands. So, uh, as you mentioned, your your products available at Sobeys. Talk to us about you know as you thought about seeking out distribution how do how do you go to market i think you sell direct as well but how do you think about going to market how did you pitch the product i mean uh, you know sobeys of course being a great uh, nova scotia empire foods brand as you think about growing it across the country and getting it on the shelves i mean merchants are are looking for great new innovative ideas but they also need something that sells well and and has a plan behind it how do you think about those things in in other words it's a little bit of what's your advice as a food entrepreneur to other food entrepreneurs listening about how not how not to just create amazing product, but then how to actually get it into consumers' hands. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, food is like an idea. You can you we all have a lot of ideas, and uh, I know that there are a lot of businesses that they 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 keep in the ideation phase and they don't scale up and they don't go to the next phase, which is certainly the most important one. It, it's it was really challenging at the beginning, honestly, to. Um, to distribute across the country. It was not easy. We started at farmer's markets and uh, we didn't know where to go next, right? Like when you are starting a food a food business, you go to, to a smaller group of population that was certainly before COVID and then you test it and then you try to distribute to smaller markets here and there in the province. You start making connections outside. But then actually we, in late 2016, we had that great conversation with uh, the local uh, development team at Sobeys in, uh, in Nova Scotia, and then they re- we realized that there is an opportunity for us to have our products there. But we had to meet certain criteria. We had to have food safety programs in place. Sure. We had to have GMP. We had to have uh, a lot of processes we didn't used to do to sell to a small gift shop on the, on the waterfront in Halifax, right? So that was mm-hmm. different. That was a whole different path that we decided to take. Now, was that similar? You know, you, you, was that similar to how you went to market in Damascus? Is, was it a, a, a local? Was it national? How did? It, so, did you have experience to draw on uh, from there? 
Well, our, our company in Syria was mainly uh, internationally exporting. Uh, we were representing many international brands as well in, in the country. So um, it was certainly, there are some systems that we used to do, but it was uh, a lot different, actually, than what we do when we do here in Canada. And so that was really a challenge for us just in the beginning to pick that up as quickly as possible because we knew that the market is there and uh, we didn't want to certainly lose an opportunity. And we didn't want to, we, we wanted to keep the brand as alive as possible, especially in yeah. the first year. Momentum because is so important. The momentum, right? exactly, because we we knew that uh, the business market in Canada is much different, and they know that there is there's a lot going on, and people have a lot going on in their lives. And maybe if you don't tell them the story, they hear the story on the news, they taste the product, but if they don't taste the product, then they will forget the story. And uh, we only had the product available online at that time. So it was a critical phase for us to go to national distribution, to be on shelves, for people to pick up a piece by chocolate box or a chocolate bar on their daily grocery shopping. So that was really what triggered our uh, partnership with Sobeys, is our uh, excitement to get the product nationally distributed. And uh, we were really thankful at that time. We started selling only in Atlantic Canada and on Christmas 2017 after opening the factory, the big factory here in Antigonish. And then uh, what I hear from Sobeys is that pallets were disappearing from warehouses overnight. Like the pollen was really flying <laughs> off the shelves. It was really it's a, amazing. It's a, it's a nice problem to have. It's really amazing. <laughs> yes, in 2018. Um, it's still I, a problem, though, right? The Sobeys guys are, hey, yeah, we love your product, but you got to fill your orders. <laughs> it's still <laughs> yes. a problem, right? Yes, absolutely. So, like in 2018, uh, we uh, we heard a lot about what was, what was going on in Atlantic Canada and all the success we had on Christmas at that time. And I did a tour in Ontario when we launched first in many stores in, in Ontario, in the GTA and around, around Toronto as well. And, uh, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of, of stops there asking stores about if they are interested in carrying our products. I was really visiting a lot of stores on my way there. I used uh, the whole month of May 2018 just going there and meeting people, meeting store managers. And then later in 2018, we had that national agreement, national partnership with Sobeys when our products were listed across, across the country uh, within Sobeys and their banners. So for all the everyday products on the planogram, we have three products now within Sobeys. Uh, our 15 peat box chocolate, we have two chocolate bars, and we offer seasonal uh, offerings as well, for, especially for Easter and Christmas. These are our strong seasons. You know, before we uh, before we let you go, I did want to uh, ask about the book that's uh, that's coming out. I think it's just being released. I think it's called Peace by Chocolate. Tell me about a little bit about the book and and how it came to be. It it, it looking at it, it looks like the um, you know the history and and the journey that you and your family have been on. But uh, give us a sense of what we'd uh, what we'd find in the in this book. Uh, the book is uh, written by the incredible author. He's a CBC journalist called John Tatry. And uh, we started uh, interviews in 2018 with my family, with all the stakeholders in the community, with uh, other people that we have met throughout the journey, uh, from the Canadian embassies, you know, to uh, everyone on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, to a lot of journalists who did the first interviews. So the book basically is a documentation of the entire journey of my family and what we, what did we used to do in Syria. Mm-hmm. And really in the book, it tells the story even that chocolate was the reason that my father met my mother and they fell in love. Mm-hmm. So that's actually <laughs> wow. the first chapter. So <laughs> later on, it's about really the incredible 
family that we had back home in Syria and the lifestyle that we, um, as a whole family, we used to live there before the war and during the war and after the war until we became refugees in Lebanon. And, you know, the transition was absolutely massive. Like you cannot live that successful life in Syria and imagine in one day that in a blink of an eye, you will lose everything and you will wake up having nothing. So in Lebanon, living as refugees and then the hope and dreams of coming to Canada and arriving here with a lot of skills and talents and ambitions. And that's what immigrants really bring here. Uh, it's it's all about the, the big dreams and living the big Canadian dream and contributing to it. So, that's, yeah, the whole book is really that whole journey in a timeline and the perspective of all the people in Nova Scotia, all the people across the country that supporting immigrants is the right thing to do. And starting uh, a business, a food business, especially in Nova Scotia, was also uh, a badge of honor for our family because we knew that we are making an impact, not only because we make chocolate, but also we make partnerships. So in the book, you will read a lot about our partnerships with other organizations, non-for-profit organizations, care a lot about causes, support homelessness, uh, you know, to to solve homelessness in the major Canadian cities, to support refugees coming to Canada, to support Canadian uh, organizations that they care about mental health, the Canadian Mental Health Association. A lot of that actually is in the book. And uh, it just nothing really, uh, uh, it's been just like a great time to release it. Uh, the world now mm-hmm. is living through a pandemic. Uh, yeah. Everyone is, is anxious. The world is very uncertain. And I just wanted to share throughout the book, uh, throughout what we wrote through John, is that we have to be resilient and human beings are very adaptable to all these challenges. And resiliency through adversity is really what matters. At the end of the day, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, right. It's, so, been my, so. it's been my experience. These, these works of human stories are far more interesting and compelling than any fiction writer can, can dream up. And I think that sounds like uh, just the case for this book. Sylvain, Read us out. I think uh, you have any, it's been a fantastic conversation, Tarek. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Such so an much inspiration. And, and thank you, uh, Tarek, for joining us. And uh, thank you and your family uh, for for offering us such a, a great story. Uh, it's so inspiring for a lot of people. And, uh, yeah, and I hope that you'll enjoy the rest of your journey in, in Canada. Thank you for Thank you for choosing Canada. It's just uh, it's a privilege to have you uh, part of this country for sure. No, no, it's, it's really it's really my honor. Thanks so much for having me and being also sharing some inspiring stories. I've been a, been a fan uh, for for your podcast, and I know that people now need to hear some you know sharing human stories a lot more than. I, I, I have one very serious question to ask you to finish uh, us off. Is sure. you you run a chocolate factory? Why are you so thin? Still, <laughs> I need to know. I need to know your secret. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I am. I'm so tall. So I mean, I'm not really thin. Even my my uh, my BMI is high. So uh, I'm not really thin. But I'm tall. But also that, that is part of the marketing for the company. <laughs> so, so you're thin and modest too. That's great. Uh, that is, uh, actually, that is just because. Um, uh, it's part of the marketing. You cannot run around selling chocolate when you are <laughs> 500 pounds. So uh, it, it is a great way to, uh, to to run a chocolate company for sure. Well, very good, Tarek. And, and thanks again for joining us on the Food Professor Podcast. Been real, so it's been a real treat. Thanks so much. So, man, I love the idea of talking to Tarek about food because above the amazing story of 
tenacity and, and coming to Canada and, and being welcomed and starting a company is as a food maker, his vision and, and everything that went into his product. So it was really great to get that perspective. I think. Oh, absolutely. He's got, I mean, he's got an amazing story. He's so compelling and, and, and he's, he's very, he's very charming. Of course, so over a podcast, mm-hmm. you can't really tell, but I, I've met him personally, very charming and very personable as well. And, and he's grown uh, into becoming a, a Canadian. Uh, mm-hmm. His family chose Canada uh, for peace. And now he's, 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 uh, he's a great ambassador for peace as well. I mean, he's been around the world talking about his story. And, uh, but I, I, wanted, I wanted him to come, come on to talk about the, the peace by chocolate story. And we got a lot mm. of that uh, in, in, yeah, in, yeah, during, the, during the interview. And I was very happy because I actually think that he doesn't have uh, many opportunities to talk about peace by chocolate because uh, his personal story and his family story is so, I mean, it's so overwhelming. It's, mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot there to unpack, but I just wanted to give him a little bit of a break and allow him to talk about mm. chocolate, Syrian chocolate and, and how is, how it is to start a business in a new country. And I mean, he, he makes it sound so easy. I mean, when you think about all the startups that you and I've interacted mm-hmm. with over mm-hmm. the years, the struggles, once you actually see a company like Peaceside Chocolate, no one has any excuse, really, to not try to start a business. <laughs> really. Well, you know, it was, it was so interesting listening. You said, listen, we had a chocolate factory in, in Damascus, and, and Damascus is a major city, and now we're, yeah. we're in rural Nova Scotia, and we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to get the same ingredients. Anyway, it was just a fascinating uh, discussion and again to the to the listeners pick up his book which is now available. i really laughed when he actually made the comment about salt and canadian <laughs> i know <laughs> he's, he's selling like, something Ooh. he hates but it's kind of he's actually <laughs> selling a food product he doesn't like and that's rare in the food industry right because people chefs restaurateurs everyone in the food industry will sell something they would want to eat themselves but not not with yeah. this one that was kind of funny yeah, he's like, who, who on earth puts salt and chocolate together? <laughs> what is wrong with who you these, guys? Who are these North Americans thinking about all this stuff? <laughs> oh, anyway, yeah. I thought that was very funny. Speaking of, let's, let's move on. I wanted to talk about uh, the legislation that came out last week, kind of back to more from a policy perspective, the government uh, talking about finally getting out of plastics and, and uh, banning single-use plastics. And, and it really has a... Um, a, f- a fairly dramatic impact on the restaurant food service sector because the low cost uh, disposable utensils are, are a, a thing of the past. So what do you, what do you think is going to, you know, what's going to come of all this? I mean, there, there is solutions. They're probably a little more expensive in, in terms of different products instead of single use plastics. But what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Nothing new, but the government is really kind of clearly moving this legislation forward. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, during a pandemic, uh, which I thought yeah. was interesting. What did you think about mm. the uh, the announcement last week, saying that we're they're carrying on with with the bans, uh, and and you, we both both you and I talked about plastics a few weeks ago, and clearly Canadians mm-hmm. just didn't didn't want this to happen. They actually wanted uh, governments and industry to wait until after the pandemic to to uh, pursue more bans and restrictions related to plastics. Well, it, it, the government actually did two things last week that were interesting that they moved on. This was one, and, and, uh, and allowing cities to, to ban handguns, which I thought was two pieces of interesting legislation for the times. Um, you know, 
it, it's when I look at the some of the things that are going to survive the COVID era in terms of trends, I firmly believe the sustainability will come back stronger than ever. So, you know, from from people perspective, I think the Canadian population versus the industry is is okay with it. Um, and I think, you know, the Liberal government, any governments are looking to their people rather than as much their industry. And, I, you know, I think in one way, it's going to drive innovation. In other words, if there's not a substitute available now, there better be one in six months. And let there's no, that'll be delayed forever. Like everyone will say that you know, you've got to put it off forever. Don't do it. Now, your point is, you know, with an industry struggling the way it is, uh, is this is this the time? So, I mean, yeah, you can certainly question the timing, but you can't, I don't think you can question the future. Now, if you're in Alberta, you, you would wish uh, maybe that's not so positive for the oil and gas industry, uh, for plastics. So, boy, it's a complex issue. Oh, know? absolutely. That's what what, what really surprised me is, is, the, um, is the narrative related mm. to toxic. And uh, I've mm. never heard the federal government actually claiming that plastics are toxic. They, they are, mm-hmm. but they weren't explicit about it until now. And my mm-hmm, guess mm-hmm. is that they decided to to articulate the toxicity of plastics just because of the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and they mm-hmm. wanted to make this case undisputable. Mm-hmm. And so because a lot of Canadians out there are still fearful, they're quite concerned, and they see plastics as a, a source of safety, really, for themselves. Mm. And uh, mm. still today, I mean, we're seeing in our numbers at the lab. The language itself was very interesting, I thought. Uh, and, uh, and then, first, the runway is quite, I mean, we still have a year and change left before mm. the actual mm. ban for six key products in the food industry. So there's plenty of time there. I mean, this is my second run at this. I was, uh, in my early days after getting out of school, I worked for a single package company's Dixie Cup. And uh, it was right in the heart, if you remember, the, the elimination of the uh, the foam clamshell that hamburgers used, oh, to, yeah, yeah. used to make that product you know, 20, oh 25 goodness, years yeah. ago. So, you know, you know, it was you, just, you earth killer, you, <laughs> you, I mean, you know, it was, it was a shock to everyone. And, you know, it just, it, it did feel like that kind of second moment. And maybe the, you know, maybe consumers are also saying they're more concerned about their health than ever before. But at the same time, the Dixie cup existed, was invented for a reason, right? It stopped cholera in, exactly. in shared water use in the yeah. first part of the 19th, 20th century. So yeah. So there's, there, um, there is a legacy mm-hmm. there and plastics uh, mm-hmm. have been mm-hmm. wonderful for a while to replace plastics. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't, we should, but to replace plastics is going to be a lot of work and you're right. Absolutely. It's going to drive, this is, this is policy driven. It's going to create a mm-hmm. level playing field for everyone and it's going to drive innovation. And this is exactly what, what the food industry needs. And frankly, based on comments I heard from the food industry, they're pleased. I, I think people, mm-hmm. uh, everyone is very comfortable. The only concern I think that people have is how Canadians will react. And I think they reacted well. There were a few uh, bumps last week. I saw some some commentators uh, reacting mm-hmm. negatively to the to the announcement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But overall, the the one concern that I have is is obviously food affordability because uh, I mean you you're gonna have to replace plastics and that material will likely will like will likely cost more. Uh, until you build a sector, until you build more capacity, 
that material will cost more, and that could actually compromise food affordability for some people. And they always have to be but the legislation. But the legislation opens up the opportunity to build more capacity, right? Because now exactly. that there's legislation in place, and the government will exactly. still be around. Uh, you've got some certainty in an industry, and, and you're right about the national approach because the worst approach is this municipality or even provincial, because then you got a patchwork of legislation to oh deal with God. as a retailer, right? And that's, you know, we'll, we'll, we have a great guest actually next week, Julie Denton, senior vice president from that's right. Recipes Unlimited. And, you know, they're a national player, right? So one set of rules for them all is it just makes uh, their lives uh, operationally easier and, and, and more efficient. I got, I got Last to tell couple you, of, cities, mm. cities are run by, by Napoleons. I mean, some, mm. some engineers out there are, are, they think that, well, you should, this is allowed, this should be allowed in compost while other things aren't allowed. And it's been very difficult for companies, for example, like club coffee. Remember when we interviewed Solange yeah, and Ankerl, yeah. if you, Companies like uh, Cup Coffee have had a hard time innovating because of of these Napoleons out there. It's been difficult. So this policy will clarify rules. Last couple of things. Um, In the news, a Saskatchewan farmer passed away, uh, and there's a movie about his life that happened to be released uh, last week with Christopher Walken, of all people. I love Christopher Walken, but uh, playing the role of of, uh, Percy. Sorry, I don't know his last name. Uh, Schmeiser. passed away. Per- Percy Smyser. So tell us a little bit about the background of, of Percy and his, and his story and what, uh, what made it into a, a movie. I haven't seen the movie yet, but uh, it sounds like an, an interesting and now even more so uh, compelling story to go see. Yeah, well, well, Percy was a polarizing character. I lived in Saskatchewan mm. for for seven years and met Percy Schmeiser um, a couple of times. And uh, he, he's a farmer out of Saskatchewan, very resilient, tenacious, and uh, decided to go up against Monsanto. And, and at the time, of course, uh, biotechnologies were starting to creep up into agriculture and farmers were paying a license to grow seeds manufactured by Monsanto. That's what, that was kind of the model. Uh, but Percy Smarter said, well, I'm a farmer. I can grow whatever I want. And so what he challenged is that model. And so he, 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 went, he basically um, sued Monsanto one uh, one in Saskatchewan, but that case actually went up to the Supreme Court of Canada. I can't remember the year, but it was quite a few years ago. And the Supreme Court of Canada, Supreme Court of Canada ruled against him five votes against four. So it is a very close, very close call. And what he challenges is that really farmers can keep their seeds uh, from one year to the next without paying a license because mm-hmm. seeds are owned by farmers and not by Monsanto, a company. Oh, I see. And I see, that, I see. That, was, that was really the case here. It was very much about intellectual property, but Monsanto did win. And I think the Supreme Court did make the right call because, of course, uh, when, you, when you think about how – Biotechnologies have actually helped farmers. Farmers make a lot of money <laughs> with with genetically modified seeds. Like let's be let's be honest here. They they can predict yields. They do very well. Agriculture has become way more efficient as a result of the work coming mm-hmm. out of of, uh, of biotechnology companies. So it, so mm-hmm. farmers have to compensate that in some way. Of course, a lot of people dispute that and dispute the model itself. But really, Percy Smyers' legacy was about licensing and intellectual property who owns it and what is the role of the farmer what i really like about percy smizer is the personality the style 
and and the tenacity. I mean, it was just mm. an amazing story coming out of Saskatchewan, and it was it's really really nice to see Hollywood uh, looking at a mm. farmer or making a. a looking at a farmer and making a farmer a principal character of a movie. The last time I saw that was field of dreams. Right. Like, seriously. Right. Right. And as you were saying of, that, I was trying to think of, I was trying to think of what other, you know, yeah. what other major mo- motion field of dreams. Is. Well, I, uh, I may gravity. shock you, but it's not based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, neither is interstellar. That's one I was thinking of, you know, where they, uh, they go into space, but the, it's in the future and they're all farmers and the, you know, the crops are dying. And that was about a, Farmer astronaut, so that's not exactly. Aren't fair. you talking about Mars? Uh, that's one. Yeah, that's a good one too. He's a farmer. Yeah, he he's grows a farmer tomatoes. He grows potatoes. Yeah, yeah but a, a lot of people who are against Percy, because a lot mm. of farmers are mm. certainly not favorable to his cause. They they're concerned that Hollywood would present a different case and would give reason to to Percy. But I actually see this as a positive for farming in general. This is a great movie. Uh, it's going to uh, promote Saskatchewan, promote Canada, promote farming in general. Mm. And so, uh, and, and farmers, I think Percy Smarters is a good ambassador to farmers, notwithstanding the cause itself against Monsanto, but just looking at the character itself and, uh, and the persistency it's, 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 it was, uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm going to go and watch it for sure. Well, I'll put a, a link to the trailer in the show notes. I was watching it yesterday, Christopher Walken being one of my favorite, uh, actors and, and, uh, um, I didn't quite see him as a farmer from Saskatchewan, Mister Manhattan, but uh, I'm yes. sure he'll do an amazing job. So that's so great story. And and uh, R- R- also in the movie. Oh wow! I don't know where I'm going to go see it though, but all the movie theaters are closed in this part of the world. It'll be a, yeah, that's right. Download it. Come come um, over to my place. Uh, you'll be stuck for two weeks in my home, but hey, <laughs> it's worth it. Hey, it's I got worth a giant it. screen here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> perfect. Uh, hey, listen. Last thing, uh, you've got some more research coming out. Sneak peek. Give us the, the 30 seconds, uh, something about Canadian shopping and paying. Will they pay for local produce? I think that's your next research released on the, I want to say October 22nd. So we'll talk about it in more depth in our next episode. But uh, give us a sneak peek of what you're looking at and what the AgriFood Labs is up to. Yeah, the, for the next uh, podcast, we're actually going to be uh, talking about two studies uh, busy, busy. Uh, so we have Supply Management 2.0 coming out on October 14th. And and that's with the University of Guelph. And uh, mm-hmm. on October 22nd, we have a review of local foods. A lot of talk, because of COVID, a lot of companies, a lot of governments are talking about food autonomy. Uh, what we want to know is whether or not people are willing to pay more for local foods or are, lo- are they looking for local foods? Are they willing to pay for local foods? And of course, thinking about food autonomy and greenhouses, how do Canadians see greenhouse grown veggies mm. and mm. fruits compared to imported food products coming from abroad? during the winter time. So we're, we're going to be trying to answer, we're going to try to answer some of these questions. All right. Interesting. That sounds, yeah. that sounds great. Well, listen, another great episode. Um, I wanted to uh, make sure and thank uh, our special guest, Tariq Haddad for being our guest on the episode of uh, this episode of the food professor podcast. And, and if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, please rate and review and be sure to recommend to a friend or colleague in the grocery food service or restaurant industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast. And I'm Sylvain Chalabois. Until next time, have a safe week. All right, bye-bye.